Welcome to the Friendly Maples Lounge, the podcast all about board games, new and old, weird and fun, and our thoughts and feelings on their playability. I'm your host, Jen Flores. And I'm your host, for Singal. And today we do have a very special guest with us. If you were watching our Friendly Maples Live, the very first episode, you would have seen Francois, who is one of our Melbourne Maples committee members. Francois, welcome. Thank you very much, guys. It is absolutely awesome to be here. And this time we're actually properly recording Francois. One of us maybe made a little bit of a mistake last time and uh, <laughs> forgot to press record on Francois. So we're having to do some very creative editing thanks to Chris. So watch this space. You may or may not have had the results of this very creative editing. So this is what we don't know at this point because I have all the raw materials to try and do it sat in, a, sat in the inbox, if you like. Um, so we had a go at recording on Facebook Live and we thought we'll do it cunningly because we started using a new podcasting platform using Riverside and that's been fantastic so far and we will step up and that allowed us to live cast onto Facebook. Thank you for those of you that tuned in, in particular those of you that tuned in and stayed the distance because we got a great recording out of it on Riverside but Facebook did this cunning thing where it took anything that was coming in that had a lot of bandwidth and it was a bit slow and then it sped it up to catch up and then it ran a bit slow and then it sped it up. And silly old me was recording on high definition video. So it was me that came through and I went, and, but we've got a great recording on Riverside. So we thought that's okay. We'll get the video. And after the fact, we'll put that video on top of the proper audio and everything will be fun. Except Francois was on that and we've called him a producer. And so that wasn't recording him. So I've either succeeded in getting these things together or I haven't. If you're wondering why we left that video up and we didn't put up the clean version earlier, uh, this is why. God, it's a bit of That's work today. <laughs> um, but we may have done that. And I think our big lesson coming out the other end of that is let's get ourselves on YouTube. <laughs> we'll share a link to Absolutely. that next time. But you learn. Definitely you learn from your mistakes with everything in life, right? And I think uh, next time I need to read the little scripts underneath the roles a little better where it says, your producer will not be recorded. So, um, yeah, go, Jen. Which, in, in all <laughs> honesty, Jen, it, it makes sense to not have your producer be recorded because he can or she can then, yeah, um, you know, chat to you guys offline and nobody will be the wiser. Uh, and I read it and I go like, oh, that's great. I can I can just chat to you guys. But then when we actually did the recording, I didn't realize how much I was actually speaking. So I mean, but. to be fair, that's <laughs> also our fault. We were, we were chatting with you. We were asking you questions. It probably should have occurred to me, oh, this is not going to record, Francois. See, it make, makes sense because oh, the standard well. role of the producer is either to be sort of quiet or more likely to be uh, noticing the fact that the episode's going on for way too long and they don't want to edit it because it's on video, so they want to wrap it up a little bit. So they'd be kind of like shouting words into the, the headphones of the presenters and using some choice language probably in doing so. So you don't want to record all that. Right? You know, the idea is we just grin and bear it and look like happy and smiley. But Francois, tell us a little bit about how you got into board games. Thank you, Chris. I got into board games by playing, I think like many other people I've heard of, uh, Magic the Gathering. Um, I was introduced to Magic by a, a friend and played it for years and years uh, in my home country in Bloemfontein in South Africa. We did not have a dedicated game store 
and also not a dedicated space to play magic at. We played at libraries and church halls even, uh, played many, many church halls. Did ask players not to play too many black uh, decks at that point because we <laughs> didn't want uh, the church ministers to walk by and see all the skulls on the graphics. But other than that, <laughs> nothing caught on fire, not on the church and, and not on the magic cards. We realized soon that um, <laughs> it became more difficult for us to play magic as Wizards had, off the coast, the publishers have moved to a point where they wanted to encourage the um, players to play in game stores, in physical game stores, and we could not make any sort of uh, official play. So we realized that we really needed a game store to actually play Magic in any way, shape, or form uh, in our country. And one of the big game stores in South Africa approached me and asked me if I didn't want to start my own game store, uh, which we actually did. So I started the game store to have a venue for Magic and uh, the game store manager sent me exactly nine board games and said, you know what, Magic is great. I know you don't play any board games, but just put these in your shop. My wife, who uh, helped me run the board game shop, uh, then started reading up on board games, and we actually started playing board games as a family at that point. My boys were about eight and ten years old, and, and they already played Magic then. Uh, but then we really started playing uh, board games, and, and that outgrew my my love for magic. And now I call myself a board game player that that sometimes dabble in a little little bit of magic. Have you ever mentioned to Rod at any stage? For those that don't know, Rod's my beautiful husband. Um, he's actually off today with some of his friends playing Magic: The Gathering. Have you ever mentioned any of this to him, Francois? Because I think he'd be very interested to hear I, all about I have it. Not Rod and I played many board games together already, but I only realised this about Rod when I listened to the podcast. <laughs> I realised he's he's really a big fan. I go like, ooh, we should be we should be playing more Magic together, uh, definitely. So that's how I got into board games, um, and then we moved to Australia, and one of the things that we did to get to know people was start to play board games, and, and this is truly still my best friends and also uh, the people at Melbourne Meeples. I really got to, to know a lot of people through the hobby um, and really find it to be one of my great passions in life is playing board games. It's definitely been a really good way for me as well to meet new people and that's how I'm a husband. So, you know, I'm always a big, big advocate of using board games as, you know, a social crutch to meet people. And, you know, it's meant that I've gotten to know some amazing people I never would have met in any other way. You know, like Chris and Joe. I mean, I'd say they've become some pretty good friends of ours now. And if it wasn't for board games, never would have met either of you either. I've said probably a few times on this podcast that because I moved to Australia in the middle of the pandemic, and obviously Melbourne was going in and out of lockdowns, but we landed in Melbourne at a point when it wasn't locked down and went to Osbonicon. It was our first gaming meet when it wasn't locked down. And I would count all of the people that I sat down and played a six-player game with who were complete strangers on entering Bunnicon as friends today, which is 
quite amazing. Yeah. And you look back at it and sort of think, well, okay, how does that work? Uh, normally you'd think it would only be like sort of one or two. And it's all just such a wonderful community here. I get that. And it was awesome. And it's awesome. I think BunnyCon's a fantastic place for meeting people anyway, just because it's got that little bit of intimacy as a convention. Absolutely. Did I meet both of you at BunnyCon? So yes. I certainly met you at yes. BunnyCon, Jen. Did we meet at BunnyCon, Francois? Yeah. 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 It's just a magical yeah, event. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so topic-wise... is for today uh, one of the things we're going to talk about was in fact Francois's favourite game except we played it and we've got to talk about is it still his favourite game and it was at one point one of my favourite games and it's still one of my favourite games with some caveats Um, so Francois do you want to tell us a little bit about what was your favourite game and then we might get in a little bit uh, more detail about what we thought about it when we played it recently. Let me start with a little bit of uh, my history with Archipelago. I uh, really, really uh, loved the game. And I think, if I recall, this was probably the 12th game that was sent to us uh, on consignment from our friend who owned the board game store in South Africa. So the box arrived. My wife did some reading on the game, and I read what she wrote, and I got like, wow, I didn't know games can do this. I always thought that uh, you rolled some dice, and you moved a little figure around the board, and then you bought uh, Main Street if it came up for auction, and that was about the board game. But there was so much going on in this board game, and I decided, wow, that, that looks amazing. So... We looked at some finances and I bought the game for myself out of my own board game store. Opened it up and could not imagine that one board game contained so much. Uh, but it was really hard to get people to play. My, my family at that point loved playing board games with me, but it was a good chunk of time. It took some time uh, to teach my boys uh, at that point, I, I believe they were about uh, 10 and uh, 8 and 10 years old. So it took a bit of time, but they played with it. It was like it was complicated, um, but not a family favorite. My wife felt it was too long. My boys felt it was too complicated. So I didn't get a lot of chance to play. But when I did get some more serious board game players, we we played it a few times and I enjoyed the experience every single time. When we moved to Australia, one of the first conventions we attended was OzBunnyCon 2017. I don't know if you guys wow. remember that wow. uh, specific one. You were not there. I wasn't there. So there. what happened, we bought no. uh, tickets for MeepleCon 2017 and the venue was flooded uh, by a ginormous storm in Melbourne and it was cancelled. It was the art center in the Robin in, in Preston. They cancelled it and then moved it to Osbanicon and Meeplecon had the same convention. So me and my wife uh, and the boys rock up at this venue and I go like, ah, new victims. I will play Archipelago. <laughs> But I haven't played it in years and years, literally in years. So I sat around at the table, um, had uh, five other people play with us. We played the longest version of the game, and that is what I did for the day. It was an awesome experience. I fumbled a little bit through the rules, but it was really lovely because the people around the table helped me out. And I got like, this is an amazing game. I need to play it more. 
forward to meeting Chris, and then at some point he goes like, ah, oh, uh, what's your favorite game? It's this amazing game. People haven't heard about it, but it's called Archipelago, and um, it's literally, I've never mentioned a game to Chris that he hasn't heard of <laughs> and played before. Uh, and has multiple opinions on. Uh, I was like, ah, oh, this is uh, it's, it's not a bad game. It's one of my favorite, but there's some issues. I go, what issues? He goes, like, oh, when did the last was last time you actually looked at the game? There's colonization. There's like, it's 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 got a bit of a uh, bit of issues with it. And then I went back, and and Chris also mentioned a interview with the designer of the game, uh, Christoph Bollinger, and I I actually hunt down the the interview where he spoke about the game so that, that I could challenge Chris on some of his views, which I later realized Chris probably have thought about this for a long time and got some <laughs> really good arguments, but was still willing to play the game with me, which I was like really super excited. Sat down, we played the medium link game, really enjoyed it, and after the game go like, it's not my favorite game anymore. <laughs> and Jim goes, oh, we broke the game for you. <laughs> so, uh, see, I've only played Archipelago once, and it was when we decided we wanted to do an episode with Francois because he's very charismatic and fun to chat with and asked him what was his favorite game and had some very interesting discussions about how controversial it was. I was like, I have to play it now. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely, I mean, if you break it down and just go, here is what you do during the game and you don't think about the wider context of the game, absolutely, you know, it's just a great game. When you actually look at the context of the game, <laughs> it's a little problematic. And uh, speaking of which, there's there's actually something we've been wanting to do for a while on the podcast, which is an acknowledgement of country. Um, obviously, we are recording our podcast in Australia. We all know Chris's English, you know. We all know if you've been listening for a while, you know I'm actually originally English, but sound very, very Australian. Um, but, yeah, we thought we'd turn it over to Francois. He's got a bit of experience where it comes to acknowledgement of land and country. So tell us a bit more, Thank Francois. Thank you so much, uh, Jen. I think, yes, uh, for me, my journey in Australia has been very much connected to my journey with the uh, Aboriginal uh, community here in Melbourne, um, and I have worked for a Aboriginal-controlled organisation uh, called VACA here in Melbourne as my first paid job in Australia, and have really enjoyed my journey uh, and learning more about uh, the Aboriginal history, um, what it is, and, and what it looks like. And as part of that, I would love to do an acknowledgement of country. So I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today. I am on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past and present, acknowledge the amazing work that the emergent leaders are doing in a resilient community and we stand with uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in this time when we are talking about the voice and the referendum coming up. So thank you so much, Jane, for that. Thank you. I think um, there's definitely a lot for all of us to learn and, you know, we I think we've come a long way as 
people in general in our society to being more accepting of everybody, but there's still, particularly for us here in Australia, so much to learn about the things that have happened in the past and particularly to Aboriginal people and, you know, how incredibly privileged a lot of us actually are that I feel very tentative, I guess. You can probably all hear it, very tentative talking about the topic because I feel so uneducated, which is ridiculous. I've done all of my education pretty much in Australia minus, you know, a few little bits. And there's just so little that's talked to us about our actual history and what's happened to the people who are the original inhabitants of this nation, who we stole this country from. One of the things we need to do is we wanted to have a talk about Archipelago. So we're going to have to split this into two parts. And one of them is actually talk about the game. Because there's a game in here that's very, very, very fascinating. Um, I recently recorded a top five semi-cooperative games. You all know I'm obsessed with semi-cooperative games. And I had Archipelago still as my number one on that list, despite some of the challenges, just because it is so interesting as a game. Interesting is the word. You may like it, you may not like it. There are problems with it as a game as well. But there's also where Archipelago sits thematically. And I think that's where we started. So maybe that's the, if I summarise what it is as a game, and then try and summarise uh, the thematic side without taking sort of too long at it, because it's a complex game, I'm not going to explain the whole thing. So Archipelago is ostensibly a cooperative game of sorts, in practice, a semi-cooperative game, um, where you are exploring an archipelago that emerges on map tiles as you lay out, and you're going in as the colonizers from, you know, from Spain, England, Portugal, whatever it is, France. I think in general France, because the, it was a French designer and he very much rooted it in the sort of the stories that he'd understood uh, about sort of the French colonization of the Caribbean. So you have... Uh, the colonizing ships going in through there, they find the local populace, they start setting up and producing goods via the local populace, and then you're using various cards and powers in order to be able to effectively soup up the actions you can take. But at the same point, you've got a population there that does not want to be colonized. And a population that does not want to be colonized can either be subjugated and they can be put to work and given jobs, or they will come back and rebel against you. And if that rebellion rises too high, you all lose, which is the cooperative element of the game. You're trying to work together to an extent to make sure that that doesn't happen. And you'll get crises, as you often do in semi-co-op games, they'll arise and you all have to contribute some goods towards that crisis to see who's going to fix it. The semi-cooperative bit comes from when you have bidding on term order, you've got your own private win conditions and so on, you've got your own private scoring conditions that you're trying to push towards. And so whilst you have this thing where you're all cooperating to try and fend off the problems that can happen, you've also got a way of bartering with the game so that somebody else has to take the full load of paying that cost and you can get away with doing it quite simply. Or you can pay towards the cost and rescue your own workers and leave somebody else's workers languishing. It has variable end conditions, right? You've all got a separate card saying what's going to trigger the end of the game, and no one knows what each other's is. You have variable scoring conditions. You've all got a separate card that will have different things that are being scored for. And so you can see what other people are working towards. And if they're working towards something, you kind of have to guess, I think I need a little bit of that, or I think I need a little bit of this. And so... It's not something where you can say, I'm just going to go and do one thing and make that one thing big. 
because that won't win you the game. You find yourself having to sort of scout around a little bit and trying to suss out what it is you want to do, which is fascinating. And some of the sort of table talk that can go around there is really interesting. The other thing that's really interesting is just how thematic it is. It has the most beautiful map still for a game about 10 years old, 13 years old, in fact, 13 years old. It has yeah, one of the definitely. most beautiful maps of any game ever created. They are, it just looks like the a tropical paradise, but of course it's not a paradise because you're occupying uh, and enslaving this land. Once you get on this land, you've got a whole economy running uh, where once goods are in short supply, then they become more expensive, but you can sell them for more. And when they become plentiful, the opposite is true. You can build churches to subjugate your populace because the population is less likely to rebel if they're in jobs but more likely to rebel if they're unemployed. They're less likely to rebel if you've instituted religion and more likely to rebel if you haven't. So you've got this vastly thematic story that is playing out in front of you. And that is what makes Archipelago so fascinating. It's a broken game in many ways because those end conditions, all that variability mean that actually trying to strategize it can be quite tricky. Though it's a game that I know, and I found out again like the other week when we played it, I've played Archipelago quite a lot. And it's one of the few games where I consistently seem to always win, even though I'm convinced I'm not going to win at the end of it, because I think it's just somehow intuitively, I just know it. Uh, and there's a little bit of luck in it, but there's a little bit of you just once you've got the feel of the game, you do the right stuff, even if you're not quite sure why. I think there's only one game I've ever played with you, Chris, where I've actually beat you and it's Ticket to Ride. Every other game Ooh. I've ever played with you, you've managed to absolutely smash me because I think you've played every other game we've played multiple times before I played it. <laughs> that that may be true, but almost every game I play with everyone other than you, Jen, and oh, I don't know how this is going to make you feel, I lose dreadfully at. So maybe it's just I'm trying. When I see your competitive face like cop up like that, I suddenly think, oh, crap i can't call it gen beat you look she's all fired up and it just gets me competitive i don't i don't know um but it's yeah archipelago is weird like that it is worth i think now just because we don't dwell on it necessarily too long but saying why archipelago is so problematic because to some extent it is obvious uh, and that obvious bit is it's a game about colonization it's like hey ho it's not the only game about colonization if you look at like Puerto Rico, you look at Maracaibo, you look at any game that is set where you've got this idea of, you know, expanding out uh, as historical Western people over countries that they've just discovered that happen to be occupied by other people who were there in the first place. They're all colonization games. So that theme has been used. It's often been used without the game really keying into that theme, particularly. Right, but most games, they ignore the fact that there's any kind of a problem with that. They just have colonization as a theme, and it's just a thing because you're exploring this kind of like landscape, blah, blah, blah. You might find some natives in inverted commas, and you might subjugate the natives or trade with the natives or whatever. But there is that kind of, you know, white people going to explore thing. And that's really common in lots of games. That's been part of the history of the stories that those games were based upon. And many of those games have been rethemed. So Puerto Rico has recently been rethemed, kept its name Puerto Rico, but repositioned the roles inside it with a lot of help from Jason Perez from the, the One Stop Show Shop, who's also a passionate campaigner about that. And that's been absolutely fantastic that they've done that. And that has kept the thing. You have other things where the game Mombasa was rethemed as, I can't remember what it's called now, it's been rethemed with a spacey type theme. So take it completely away from that colonization thing. But you can't do that to Archipelago, because Archipelago's themes are entirely structured into that exact story. 
it is one of the most thematic games I've ever played. It genuinely represents that colonization activity, warts and all, story and all. Unfortunately, it was designed by a designer who both included the fact that, you know, these invaders weren't always good. But as it says in the rulebook itself, and in fact, I might read this out. Each player portrays an explorer and his team, commissioned by a European nation, to discover, colonize, and exploit islands. The mission is intended to be one of peace, to meet the needs of the local population while providing commercial returns to the continent. The archipelago and its natives must be treated fairly or they will rebel, potentially leading to an all-out war of independence. A balance must be found between expansionism and humanism, between commercial goals and respect for local values, between knowledge sharing and unbridled industrialization. Such balance can only be achieved through each player's commitment to make the archipelago a happy and productive colony. If not, the reckless exploitation of the island's resources and their inhabitants will ultimately lead to chaos and revolt. To complicate matters, a separatist or a pacifist may hide among the players. One or the other will attempt to use his influence to tilt the balance away from equilibrium and towards his respective goals of chaos and uprising or absolute peace. Are you ready yes, to take on your discovery mission to the <laughs> archipelago? Now that shows that despite the fact that Chris Bollinger, the designer, has said in an interview that he really didn't study the history, he learned it from the stories about that expansionism because you know, he grew up in France. A lot of that expansionism came uh, as part of like French myth. You know, you learn it at school, you learn those stories from comic books and from like, you know, boys' own stories from you know the olden days when we read those such things. But within that paragraph, you can hear that whole thing about the invaders going in occupying, looking after the needs of the local needs, but nonetheless taking it over. They're colonizing, right? They're colonizing yeah. from a position where they believe they are God-given and doing the right thing. They're God-given and they have every right to do that. And they can be fair to the natives because they have a God-given right to rule. And I say God-given a few times because one of the things they're doing is building churches to subjugate people. If you look at the art of the game, yeah. you can even see that the same natives, once they're subjugated, have a whiter skin tone than the natives when they're considered to be rebelling, which almost could be argued, if you've oh. done it on purpose, as an allegory for how the process of colonizing starts to remove the cultural identity of the people that are there when they step in. So you could even look at this I game. I did not notice that. Had he done this on purpose? Now, he hasn't done it on purpose. If he had done it on purpose, it would have been very interesting because Archipelago, arguably, apart from the fact that it was all by accident, is a better or less bad game about colonization than some of the other ones because it actually tells the truth. But when you play Archipelago, you are playing the bad guys. And that is something that I don't think yeah. you'd assess to start with. But if you look at it, you see rhythms and things that actually represent what the colonizers were actually doing. You're going in, subjugating, abusing, enslaving, and taking over another colony for yourselves. And that's what you do in the game. And so it's actually quite difficult to turn around and say that Archipelago is a bad game and shouldn't exist because of the themes it tackles because it actually tackles them in a way that doesn't diminish them, it highlights them. Because it highlights them, it's not a game very many people are going to want to play today. And because it highlights them by accident, rather than on purpose, because that was the narrative that the designer came from himself, that almost makes it more authentic, because it has come from that place of believing that that's the right thing to do. So that's what makes it one of the most interesting board games I have ever played because it is so tied in 
to its historical theme in a way that other games aren't. Chris Bollinger tried to remake it or use bits of it that weren't contentious in a game called Living Planet. It ended up dry and boring because in taking the theme out of it, he took all the heart out of it. <laughs> um, and, and so it, it just didn't work. But it is very, very difficult to actually play because you've got to play the bad guys. Do you know, I think for exactly that reason, and I'm going to be a little controversial here. So this is something that Rod and I have been discussing lately in the wake of, what was that submarine called? Titanic 2? The one that, that the, went under, the that, submarine that imploded went... uh, while looking at the Titanic. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So discussing topics of should we even be going down and looking at the Titanic, you know, um, should this stuff, should we just leave this stuff alone? And I'm of the opinion that games like Archipelago, things like memorials to things that have happened in the past are extremely important in our society to exist because the more that we sweep this stuff under the rug and pretend like it didn't happen, the less we acknowledge the mistakes that we've made in our past. And I think that games like Archipelago can be used as an amazing educational tool, particularly for children. I was really glad to hear you say, Francois, you played it with your boys. What an amazing educational tool to be able to show children this is the kind of thing that happened in the past. We're playing the bad guys. You know, this is what people have done through time, you know, predominantly white people to so many different nations across the world, invading, taking them over, believing they're doing the right thing by bringing civilization, you know, to the country and making everything better. But it's not everybody's version of better. You know, it's it's like the the amazing lessons that we learned from the Titanic in such a face of tragedy and losing so many innocent lives. Someone threw that entirely out the window and went, I know better. I'm going to take these innocent people down to the Titanic in something that is completely not safe and killed a whole bunch of innocent people again, you know, and we see these patterns happening over and over and over again through time and only by using the mistakes of the past as education are we getting closer as a society, you know, of people, not, you know, races or anything, just people to actually realising that we are all just people, you know, we, we do need to all exist together because I just feel like at the core of everything, we are all people and what an amazing educational tool this game designer has given us to be able to carry forward and show people what's happened in Absolutely. the past. Absolutely. I think, uh, thank you for sharing that, Jane. I, I, I do agree uh, with absolutely everything you said. I think for me, playing the game with Chris and having this discussion it is, is changing the way that I'm looking at the game. And I think that was maybe my journey with the game and where I am at the moment. Started off with discovering something that I didn't know existed. A, a complex game with well-integrated themes with systems that are so interconnected. I've never played a semi-cooperative game. I've, I've played, no, I haven't at that point actually played a lot of cooperative games either. 
didn't realize that you can actually work with people uh, <laughs> while still focusing on some of your own. But now taking a step back and having a, a little bit more of a think about what it looks like as a game with very controversial and, and problematic, especially playing this game in, in Australia, in time where we are at myself coming from European lineage. My ancestors came from the Netherlands and Germany uh, into South Africa, where they also colonized a country uh, coming to Australia, having a look at this, thinking about this as an educational game. I think there they need to be some discussion when you bring, or even before you bring this to the table, about what the themes could be. Because one of the cards we actually had in our game when we played uh, is called Slavery. You buy the action of slavery yes. and you use it in the game uh, to advance your goals. Uh, and, and I think people need to be aware of it. I, I also think that in games, whether you are playing Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or Magic the Gathering or, or another game, it allows us to explore those parts of life that people see as traditionally bad or evil or, or the bad guy. It gives us a safe environment to explore more, not just about ourselves, but about the world around us. And I think this game has moved from, for me from a just a really cool, fascinating game to my favorite game to something that I think can now be, like I said, can potentially an educational topic or at least a really interesting topic of discussion where people can be encouraged to, to think about um, the challenges uh, both in our current political situation but also in our history. But then how do we move forward uh, from this point? I think it's, it's a really valuable lesson that we can learn from our history and this game allows us to do that. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think one of the things that I find beautiful about the board game community is how incredibly diverse it is, you know, and the fact all of us have met each other through board games. You know, all of us have had so many amazing life experiences happen to us through board games. And what you can look at these things in a couple of different ways, I think. You can look at it as that's a bad game or you can look at it as every game in its way gives us an opportunity for a discussion of some type. I love that games give us this opportunity to be in a safe space and have discussions about some very controversial topics. And while some people I definitely think are of the opinion that controversial games should be pushed aside and not played, I'm 100% of the opposite. I believe that controversial games give us an amazing opportunity. I think it, it's like anything, it depends upon the game. And sometimes if, if a game is deliberate, out-and-out offensive, sometimes that's funny. Many people have found that playing things like Cards Against Humanity. There are also yeah, plenty of like, <laughs> games like Cards Against Humanity and some of the clones of Cards Against Humanity that have perhaps gone beyond it's funny and it's a bit edgy to we just printed some stuff that is as offensive as possible. We're trying to one-up the last thing uh, to say, okay, take a look at this. God, aren't we edgy? God, isn't it awful saying this and so forth? And some of those things could get to a point where you've actually gone past funny to distasteful. And actually some of the funniest things that you get, I think it's a bit like any of those games, isn't it? With like um, NSFW card packs. They're funny for a little while, but then after a while, you find that you can be far more 
edgy by making associations between seemingly innocent things than you ever can by putting them down explicitly because then you you find oh my god they thought of that and actually that becomes funnier in and of itself but it is it's a difficult one because there's a bit where we've talked about you know how board games bring people together I mean, we're talking about right at the beginning of the podcast about how you meet people through stuff and there's that thing where you say right okay we've got something here that is about bringing together people bringing together a community and something that's fun and then you've got something else, which is board games as art. And if you turn around and say, should art be allowed to be controversial? I think all of us would say, yes, art needs to be allowed to be controversial. Yeah, 100%. Um, should art be allowed to be straight out abusive and incite hatred or violence towards anyone? No. Right. And I don't think anybody would sort of disagree no, with that definitely here. Not. Should a game that is intended to bring people together risk being a game that will make one of those people that you're trying to bring together feel isolated or in some way kind of pointed at or, or you know, uncomfortable because it tackles something that puts them in a specifically uncomfortable position. Then you start thinking, I mean, then it's, it's the same thing about, you know, if you're going to go and see a movie, you're going to go and see something that tackles a really provocative and dense topic, or you're going to go and see uh, kind of like the latest sort of action flick or kind of like rom-com or whatever it is and there's different purposes right and you go in there and so i think that is a sign that our art is maturing and that the art form of board games is maturing Mm. Uh, but it's not an easy to answer question because for everything in there and i think i certainly come from a position of of being very anti-censorship in almost all things there are still nonetheless kind of like there'll be barriers and boundaries we need to get past and some of those are boundaries that have come probably from people thinking that games are just games and not realizing that they're an art form and that they can have an impact. So Mm. purely because they've grown, purely because our hobby is maturing into something that is considered an art form, that immediately draws attention to things which otherwise would have just been throwaway. I have one game which I actually find kind of equally challenging to Archipelago and probably more so because I think it could be rethemed. Um, and unfortunately, this is very close to our hearts because it's the game, uh, another game, I think it's a fantastic game, by the way. It's a game, I think it's absolutely awesome. Um, if I didn't have this concern with it, I'd have been bringing it in and saying, hey, let's play this, let's talk about this, let's do this one, which is designed by an English guy from the same town that I live, who now lives in Australia, very famous game designer, Martin Wallace, which is Australia, Australia with a Z, which is like, kind of really like a little bit zombie-like, except it's not zombie-like, it's Cthulhu. And Australia is a sequel to a game that Martin Wallace made called Study in Emerald, which is based on a Neil Gaiman story, and it's to do with like Cthulhu and the old ones over in Europe or whatever it is. I've not read it. Uh, I know roughly what it's about. But this one was based in Australia because you know, he wants to make one based in Australia and is a cross between a train game where you're going in and building train tracks as new colonizers of Australia to try and find your way into Australia and like farm sheep and stuff, to, oh, heck, we found the Cthulhu in the middle of the country. And therefore, we've again got a bit of a semi-co-op thing going on because the Cthulhu might wipe us all out, but we want to get in there and build our trains. So it's like train game, Cthulhu monster game mixed together, and the game is phenomenal. The challenge is, is not least that they refer to the Cthulhu as the old ones. And because they had the challenge that went, oh, but hold on, Australia was already inhabited by a population before you went into there. The narrative of the game effectively starts with, oh, like the Cthulhu popped up and wiped out the indigenous population, which is why it's okay that all the cast, apart from one token Aboriginal person, are a bunch of white people coming in. And that gets us out of that story. And then on top of that, you're referring to Tulu as the old ones, which is 
a fair representation of H.P. Lovecraft, mm. that nice and natural racist gentleman uh, who wrote those stories. And I'm not a big Cthulhu <laughs> no, fan no, anyway, no. so I don't. But, but that, you know, that is unhelpful in and of itself. But of course, the idea of elders and that concept of, you know, about your elders, we talked about it when we did the acknowledgement of country beforehand ago. It's very, very easy for somebody to pick that up and have a look at it. And the first thing you go and say, the old ones inhabit Australia, and you're like, and then the invaders come, and you're like, yes, that's true. Oh, no, hold on. The old ones, you don't mean the original inhabitants of Australia. You mean the evil Cthulhu that needs to be wiped out without prejudice. And Martin Wallace has said that, you know, kind of that he wanted to skip that out of there because by having the Cthulhu in there, he could set something in there and not have to deal with that issue. The first thing that happens when you pick up that box from a context of being in Australia is you go... Ugh. Now that one <laughs> is, is <wow>. different. <laughs> that game is fundamentally different to Archipelago because you could fix it. You pick that game up and you put it Am onto I? an alien planet, Starship Trooper style. You replace the the old ones in Australia with aliens on like an outer moon somewhere. Is that right? You know, kind of with big teeth and claws, and it's not not you know kind of another civilization, but just bug hunt. And there always just some people that say, "Well, you're still colonizing if you're doing a bug hunt," but you know. Just just big old aliens with big teeth, right? Replace them with that on a barren moon full of resources, but you still want to build your train tracks. Sorted, right? The game would still work. Unlike Archipelago, it would fly. And I would, if they came in like an outer space re-themed version of that game, I would buy it in an instant. I would back it in an instant because it's a phenomenal game. Oh, I want to but, play it now. Um, I know that's really bad. But... No, it's not. It's a I, really good game. I can't... But it's, yeah, but, it's it's just it's come from that point of view that's saying i'm just designing games this won't matter and i think that's the thing isn't it mm. we've come to a point we're all recording a podcast that people listen to there's like a gazillion other board game podcasts and video producers. people are listening to them in their hundreds of thousands like board game conventions are selling out all over the world you know board games are a major thing therefore if you make a oh hold on i'll just switch this and it'll be all right because it's just a game it's no longer that small because it's it sticks out like a sore thumb because you become part of popular culture. It's a sign of success that that is actually being noticed. But that that is one game I love, and it's a brilliant game. We can play it, but damn, I wish for a rethink. If I if I find myself over a beer with Martin Wallace at some point at a good convention because it's possible because he's in Australia, the first thing I'll be saying is, can we have an Australia rethink, please, Martin? Because I think then it would be. I'd rather play that than brass any day. <laughs> Just a thought. Does it make it any better by setting it on a an outer space, like setting it in an outer space setting and killing off an entire race or an in, entire planet of people just because, or an entire planet of aliens? Does it actually make the game any less controversial because we don't have a connection to them? Um, not if I think if they're aliens, yes, you, you get into a tricky bit, and it does make it less controversial, I think. But it's if you make it into all <laughs> specters a bug hunt, Starship Troopers style. Fair. Then I think you can do that because you could do that anyway. But don't right? bugs have... deserve a life as well, Chris? Oh, they, they probably do, but the that story not is always spiders there. in my house. None. That story's always been told. Now spiders, <laughs> you are... right? No, 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 no. Right, hold on. You've just changed the narrative completely here. Right, spiders, as I will argue with my son repeatedly, a hundred percent deserve a life. Spiders will be lovingly taken out of the house. I've, I've learned that leaving them in the house, unfortunately, usually means that they they 
they don't get enough water. Right, and end up dying of their own accord, even if I like the spiders. I've had the argument inside the house. I've said, <laughs> I like the huntsman. Much spiders than I am. <laughs> Let the huntsman stay. Um, I'm a big fan of huntsmen. They're some of my favourite. How can you live in Australia without liking spiders? It makes no sense, Jen. It's like they, they, they are so part of Australian life that they, they need to be celebrated. And I think maybe that, that, that's sort of the point, no. Jen. I, I think I, I love what Chris says about game designers and games we play and, and the discussions we have around the table uh, when we play games that have themes that could potentially lead into tricky or difficult conversations is it's something that I think um, game designers need to be aware of. But also, I believe that we, uh, I myself, in a lot of groups that I play with, I will be bringing games to a convention, to a play group, to, to a group, and what I bring and how I bring that game to the table is something that I think I will be thinking of moving forward, thinking about what do I potentially do? Because I think, for me, I love the themes of games. I love the story. I love, you know, the crew. We are finding, you know, this new planet, and I'm excited to read every story. And a group that I played the crew with, I'm like, what goals do we have? Do we need twos or threes? I don't care if we're out of oxygen or we can't communicate for whatever reason. <laughs> we can't communicate. So what? I don't care about the story, but I do love the stories. I love the stories that the designers think about, and I also love living those stories. I love participating in those stories when I play these games, and I think that's, this is why um, between thinking about playing Archipelago with you guys, doing some research, thinking about the theme, playing it, and this podcast, I, I think, has really moved the way that I not only interact with this game of mine, but, but potentially all of my games, uh, and, and how I play them, and what they can potentially bring to the table in terms of discussions both before and after playing a game. Do you know, the whole discussion actually makes me feel like why don't we see more playing of board games in schools? Like, obviously, there's an education system. Education is set up the way that it is for a reason. I definitely think there's an entire other topic we could get into about the way that we educate our children in society. But what an amazing way to educate children. Why has somebody not thought of bringing board games into schools and using board games as a way to educate children about history and about economics and about all the different things we educate, gamify learning. Come on, people, let's get this thing happening. You know, what an amazing opportunity that I feel like we've really missed in our society to educate our children. I mean, there's obviously a lot of gamification that happens in, in schools in terms of teaching content and stuff, but board games in schools will be brilliant. I think one of the reasons that they haven't propagated away existing board games that we teach an awful lot about that haven't gone into schools is the reason an awful lot of really worthy things don't go into schools you can't squeeze them into 50 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes uh, clinically into an eat block that's why you can have chess club at school because you can get together and you can like bounce uh, bounce back and forth along a chessboard and there certainly will be teachers who are passionate who've done things like that um, back in my son's primary school back in the uk um one of the teachers actually ran pokemon sessions and so forth because he was a big fan himself so he got worked that way cool. of being able to run that but it took that love but a lot of those games the the challenge is you need just that little bit more time than a high school or a primary school set up 
allows. Primary school, you might get away with more because you can like take smaller sort of simpler games. But if you want to teach those things, you're doing it outside of outside of that environment. Well, I guess one of the things, because there's, there's loads of really, really educational games, once you get into all those kind of the coin games or those historical games and those war games where, you know, which are impossible to play if you have like chubby fingers because every single piece is by design and specifically an incredibly small square cardboard chip that you can't pick up. But you've got loads and loads of these educational games, historical games, some are more accurate, some are less accurate. You've got all those undaunted games, which I've never really played, you know, Stalingrad, Normandy, whatever, all those war games, which may be brilliant, but I've never touched them because it's not been my interest. But I think probably summing up, and I don't know what your thoughts would be on this, but my thoughts on that whole issue about controversial content or not even controversial content, areas where you might touch upon something that has significance to people's lives and histories and experiences and cultures and different communities and so on, is when you're touching on those areas and you find yourself touching on it, and I think this is where the game designers and the games that we've sort of talked about today have, have gone from, rather than going, ooh, that could get us moving into a bit of a hairy area, let's just find a way of smoothing over it and doing the game I want to do still in that setting but trying to ignore it, is actually worse than engaging with it. I think if you're going to make a decision to touch something that's controversial, if you engage with it and understand what you're talking about, you can then make a decision to say, right, I'm not going to do this because I can't do it justice, or I am going to do this and I will do it justice. And that's where I think a game like uh, Jen, we were playing Chasson, enjoyed, um, and Chasson and its upcoming sequel, Chasson Azadi, which is a semi-cult version. Chasson is a game of politics where you are simulating in an almost party game style the political vote-winning mechanic while doing an area control game on the side. Chasson covers lots of controversial topics. technically won. If you technically won, did we? I did a bit of a Donald Trump on Jen last time we played it. Um, but the, um, and as yet, the court case hasn't arisen. Unfortunately, Jen's political party does not have the you know, kind of the wherewithal to do that. But uh, uh, but perhaps after no. Trump is finally behind bars, it will do. But the um, there is a. Well, we're getting political here, aren't we? Shasson comes from a position of deep research. So it takes different scenarios in history um, and different elections in history. And it's the same game, however you play it. But the way that you get resources is by answering questions based upon a political question that would come up in the electorate. Some of them are pretty close to the bone. And you get to the point where you're kind of saying, I've got a choice between saying what I believe in or saying the opposite, because I know it'll get the votes just this once from that area. It's doing that on purpose. It's funny. It's serious. It's clearly from a place that does understand what it's doing. And it does genuinely teach you something about the time in history that it's reflecting. That is doing oh, it properly. Very much so. And so I think it says, don't fake it. Right? Don't pretend that, oh, this little bit of history doesn't happen or say, I'm going to revise history in my head just because I, I want to make a game about this and I really want to do it and no one will notice. Right? It's um, All games are a big deal. People are going to notice. And on that note, we've been chatting for a while, but we haven't yet had a word from our sponsors. So now for a word from our sponsors. We've been talking to you all about it for a little while now. MeepleCon 2023, our 10th anniversary, is coming up very, very soon. November 24th to 26th at La Trobe University in the fabulous Union Hall. If you weren't there last year, you totally missed out. It's a super amazing room, very soundproof. 
heaps of space, very comfortable tables, and we've got a lot of space for a huge amount of extra retailers. We're definitely going to be doing another market this year as well. And there's a whole range of other surprises we've got in store for you as well. Tickets are on sale now. You can get those at meeplecon.org.au or if you go to our Facebook page, search for Melbourne Meeples. There's links everywhere so you can get your tickets. Getting quick, they are selling out fast. meeplecon.org.au We can't wait to see you at Meeplecon 2023. And now for the lighter half of the podcast because we just spent the first half of this podcast we're talking about some very sort of serious issues so we're going to go complete about flip and talk about a topic that will be dear to any of our hearts if we have spent a significant amount of time or money invested into crowdfunding over the past few years and this is when you get a crowdfunded game and you get it home and it looks brilliant and it looks beautiful what is it that makes a game really fun to play in terms of its components and the stuff in it? And what is it that makes a game look really exciting on Kickstarter? And when did that actually match up with each other and when does it not? <laughs> that was a very oh, arduous so way many of saying times. that. So <laughs> many times. Yeah. <laughs> I know these were war stories. So I definitely, Jen, Jen, have you got any particular kind of tales of what is the most useless bling that has come in a box off Kickstarter when it's come to enjoying the game? This is, oh, here's me being controversial today. One of my favorite games, Everdell. When I very first saw Everdell, it was some friends of mine playing it with not the Kickstarter version, but the version that just comes with the normal little cardboard pieces. And they're actually very hard to find. It's much easier these days to find the Kickstarter version that does have all the cool little pieces. And so I went on to one of the Facebook groups that's all about, I think it's just the Buy, Swap and Sell board game group in Australia that's got thousands and thousands of people on it and saw a Kickstarter version of Everdell and went, oh, cool, that's going to be fantastic. And it was the collector's edition one my box, opened it up and went, holy crap, these pieces are amazing. Wow. And just thought to myself, geez, I'm really glad I didn't buy the normal store version that just has the boring little cardboard pieces because this is so much better. But to be fair, they're really annoying, some of them, because they roll around like the little logs. They roll everywhere. The pearls, it's over. Like they're on the floor. There are so many times that I've been walking around in this room because I'm in my game room at the moment. And I've been like, oh, look, it's another Everdell piece because it's rolled <laughs> off the table while we've been playing Everdell. And they ju- they go everywhere. They really do. So maybe there is actually some less risk to having little flat cardboard pieces at times than having really pretty pieces. That being said, give me pretty pieces any day. I'm such a visual person. I love the pretty pieces, even if I accidentally step on the, what are the, the resin bits from Everdell and stab myself in the foot all the time. What about you, Francois? Are there any games that you have had any disappointments with? I think mine is the other way around. (laughs) On a board games weekend with friends, we played a lovely little set collecting game called Spirits of the Forest. We opened up the box, never heard of it before. I started playing really such a lovely, elegant, uh, very cutthroat. Uh, but great set collecting game. We are these spirits of the th- forest, and you just go out and, and collect these 
little animals and the version we played was obviously the kickstarter one with lovely tiles that looked similar to domino tiles a little bit thinner but lovely amazing art on it we go like this is a great game plays easily we think it will play in multiple of our groups uh, the family will love to play it so if we have the opportunity to pick one up that's great walking around to my local game store I saw one for under 40 bucks and I, I promptly let the boys know that it would be an awesome Father's Day gift. My box arrived and I opened it up and it was not the tiles, but um, just cardboard tiles. Similar, exactly the same art, but I, I was <laughs> somewhat disappointed with not having the pretty version. Played the game and it's still awesome. <laughs> it's still a good game. It is maybe a little less tactile, a little less pretty to to put out, but it, it's still a really good game. And yourself, Chris? So there's one obvious kind of elephant in the room on all of this, which I think probably come to last because of that separate discussion. So I'm going to not go for the elephant guess yet. One of the examples that first got me thinking about this, apart from the obvious contender, was when I was playing... Tainted Grail, the uh, Awakened Realms game. And I'd remembered seeing various videos when Tainted Grail was coming on Kickstarter, you know, plodding along through the manufacturing process. And Awakened Realms are very good at that communication style. Put a bit of video on this. Marcin from the, the team is there sitting, like showing off the various things that are going to come in the box and so on. And I remember them seeing how they decorated what come the dice, the two dice that are in with the game. And I remember also getting the dice that came with the original version of Vindication as well and they had these beautiful and they are a beautiful chunky dice and um you know, it's lovely big square heavy things and i was saying look at this look at this right and these, these dice they're, they're, they're fantastic i'm not all that into sort of dice rolling these kind of games but up, you think wow that looks cool you pick it up you throw it and you throw it in the air and it goes Wee! <laughs> not <laughs> I'm sort of tapping here but wheel Right, I'm holding it in my hand. The one is face up. I lift it in the air, land it down. The one is still face up. It doesn't roll. <laughs> you get these dice that go. Now, Vindication, with some of its expansions, because they've added a whole bunch of skill tree type thing, has now got some 12-sided dice that you use if you incorporate some of the modules. And that is like, hallelujah, because 12-sided dice roll because of the shape. But roll. Like some of these big six-sided dice that are really big heavy, they don't roll. <laughs> right, if you've got a really spongy play mat, when you say it's a really soft surface you're playing on. So once I got one, I found that you could make them roll more easily. If they landed on a corner, they would roll. But on my hard table, they wouldn't roll. My hard table, they just like hit it and then just leant back. We'd like go, go, go like that. No. <laughs> so instead of getting that, you could just about throw it. So you could do that. You could try doing it like playing Dungeon Fight by throwing it over your shoulder and basically running it off the floor to see where it ended up with. Or like a four-sided dice where you spin it in the air and flip it up. But but they're just, they're just um, completely... Pointless. So that is a small one, but dice that actually roll. Like I, I know, hands down now, I'll say that the game that I feel has the best dice in my entire game collection is Mage Knight. They are ugly as sin. Mm. Right? They're these small little grey dice with colour blocks <laughs> on them. I don't know why it is they are so satisfying, but Mage Knight is a more fun game to play because of those dice. Because they're they're little bits since they're very light. And I remember talking to the, the, the fab team at Malorade Dice when they were selling some of their absolutely beautiful custom dice at one of our events. And I asked them this about, and they said, actually, it's to do with dice being too heavy and dice being light enough to they can bounce. And actually, the dice in Mage Knight yeah. are small, 
They clash off each other because you roll a few of them together. They bounce off each other. They always roll, and they roll in a satisfying way. They actually, like, bounce off the table and skitter around. They don't bounce off the table. They just skitter around, and it gives you that immediate feeling that, yes, it's a little bit of chaos happening when they're rolling. And so that is one of my biggest, is this kind of, like, monster kind of things that everything is a decoration. You've not designed it to be used. I think the other big one, and I'm going to keep going on this, is is excess content, full stop. And I'm afraid this is another Awakened Realms thing, where they go, we have put 100 yeah. hours of gameplay into this game, and a whole load of it is shit. Or we put a whole bunch of this gameplay into this game, we based it off Dark Souls, and you've played a bit through this bit of content, which actually isn't as good as it could have been if we'd have made a third of the amount. And, oh, you died, go back and set it all up again, and you'll have to start from the beginning, because we're selling you 100 hours of content. This is how it takes that long. And it's like, piss off. No, I'm not doing that. Right? But we, you know, how, who's done that? Who's looked at a game and gone, oh, am I going to get enough replayability? I'm back in this. I'm, what happens if it's only playable? Like, you know, we think about legacy games. Who used to say, oh, my God, you're going to play that like mm-hmm. 12 times. How many games have you played 12 times? And then there's like something like this will yeah, give you like exactly. hundreds of game. It's like hundreds of hours of gameplay. Yeah, <laughs> if you are in the population that is going to be backing that thing on Kickstarter, what's the likelihood of you spending that much more time playing one game, unless it's the only game you buy? <laughs> it's just. I mean, to be fair, I have games behind me that I haven't even played. You know, like at the time, saw them and went, "Oh my god, that would be absolutely amazing!" And I've played it once. You know, like. Actually, here's a really good example, Dice Forge. I have played Dice Forge so many times online. It's a really fantastic game. I've played it once wow. in person, just once. And I hunted it down for ages. I was so – I loved it so much online. I really wanted to find a copy. It's not the same. <laughs> it's much – it's actually a lot more fiddly to play in person. Um, but o- along the lines of games that – you know, with components that I was just like, oh, God, that's going to be so freaking amazing. I'm a massive Star Trek fan. I got Star Trek Catan before I got the normal version of Catan. Um, I've watched every single series. I'm pretty sure at this stage I've seen except Discovery. Discovery is not Star Trek. That is a completely different discussion. But you, you will never change my mind. Discovery is not Star Trek. It's... I can't even say that on the podcast, but God bless you, J.J. Abrams, and your imagination on ripping off the Star Trek universe. But anyway, Star Trek Ascendancy, when it came out, um, I don't – actually, I don't think it was a Kickstarter game, but when it – I was so excited to get a copy of it, like thinking this is going to be amazing, uh, the rule book. There's stuff I just can't say on the podcast. It's too long. It's way too long. It's basically every single rule is explained with in this episode, this happened, and because of that, here's this rule. Oh, like, no. Which, the, the rule book for Ascendancy could have been three pages. It's like 20. It's so big. It's way too much information. And... It just made the very first time I played it, and actually so far the only time we've actually pulled it out and played it was with my husband and his best friend Cam. And it took us two hours to set it up and get ready to play what is essentially actually quite a very simple game because the rule book is so bloated. 
It's literally like a politician trying to explain their policy. You know, they just give all these ridiculous, stupid reasons where they could say in two sentences, here's why. Unfortunately, killed a lot of the joy in the game for me. And I keep on saying I want to bring it out and I want to play it again. But trying to find people to play Star Trek Ascendancy is almost as hard as trying to find people to play Archipelago. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming that wasn't a Kickstarter thing. Or was it a Kickstarter thing? Did they actually say that they were going to put all this like thematic linking in the rule book? Or is it just a bad rule book? I don't know if it was a Kickstarter game. Well, because not – was this it... Ascendancy, not Catan? Or... No, no, Star Trek Ascendancy. I know Catan definitely wasn't a yeah, Kickstarter yeah, game because it came out before Kickstarter was mm. even a thing. But I – it might have been a Kickstarter game, Ascendancy. The first that I heard about it was when I was in Boston um, visiting my ex. And while I was over there, I went and visited another friend who lives in New Hampshire. And he took me to his local game store. And I got talking to the game store owner. Um, to, to be fair, I got talking to pretty much everybody in the store because they were all fascinated <laughs> by the Australian accent in the middle of bum freak nowhere U.S., but got talking to them about Star Trek and he was like, oh, well, have you heard about Star Trek Ascendancy? Pulled this game out, showed me these beautiful pieces, this amazing way of, you know, building the map as you go. Didn't look at the rule book. <laughs> Didn't bother to look at it. So when I finally managed to get myself a copy, probably only, I think it was maybe last year or the year before, looked at the rule book and went, Jesus Christ, what the hell? And it's only because we got we got so sick of trying to figure out the rules from the rule book that we watched a how to play on YouTube and went, oh, my God, that's so much more simple. Why, what is with this rule book? And I've actually found there's quite a few games that, oh, I won't even read the rule book anymore. I literally just go on YouTube and find a how to play because some of them are just so overbloated with story that, and I get it, like I love the story of playing games. Like when we were, you know, for the 20 millionth time playing Obsession the other day at Board in the West and I kept on, you know, creating all these silly little stories for the characters as we were going through and playing. I love that. I love the story of games just like you do, Francois, and getting behind all of that. But definitely there are some where... The Kickstarter makes a lot of promises, but I feel like sometimes the developers really go a little bit overboard and maybe deliver a little too much, where sometimes keeping it simple really is the better strategy and makes for a better game. Has anyone played Feudum? No. Feudum is no. a weird and heavy game. That has some completely bonkers components. In it, and it's one of those games where you can tell that they built mechanics to make the components work, or they basically came up with stuff that was cool because it's a very, very heavy sort of like I don't quite quite know how to describe Feudum. You have like a uh, you know sort of wandering around trying to build resources and castles and forts over this map, and you're trying to also get allegiances with these six guilds around the board. And when these six guild allegiances trigger, then you get various things, but they will then kick off different powers into the guilds around the site. And this is where it gets really head-scratching, because I go and do something from this guild, which then has an effect on resources available to that one and that one, but not that one and that one, and now I want to do that, and then that one and that one. But then there's this big kind of alien beastie walking along who looks like he's almost made out of little pottery stuff. But then they built all these different expansions for it, which put all this incredibly cool things in the box. And there's this Rudders and Ramparts thing. It has these lovely little ornate models of things, which are just completely bonkers. But 
there's not actually enough of them to play with. Like if you go and buy the last most recent expansion they had, and I have like one iteration of it, you have these like additional powered up pieces, but really you need about three boxes of them. They're just decoration. <laughs> um, and they're really cool if you just use them as substitutes with the main pieces. But to justify them, they had to then build some expansion rules around them, which don't actually make the game any better. You know, kind of, you better off playing the core game. It's, it's fun. It's a little, freedom's a labor of love. And it's just completely absurd. And it's quite cool. It's got this beautifully artistic board, which is actually really hard to see the bits you're supposed to actually do your actions on because it's so artistic. You kind of have to go, oh yeah, oh, hold on, there's a little thing there. But it's, it, I've not seen it a game that looks like it artistically. It's just, it's just completely bizarre. That's one that's weird. I find sometimes you'll get like little pieces which are, I assume, more difficult to pick up, but they're nicer. So like the um, In Earth, which I literally just received, uh, like the, the, um, my kind of pre-order, like yesterday, two days ago. Well, I don't have his Earth to hand because Earth is in the other room at the moment. But Earth has the the Kickstarter that add-ons has these little black soil tokens. Uh, they are harder to pick up than the cardboard ones. And um, but bizarrely, Earth has something really weird that might be a retail anyway thing, and and is actually almost an aside to this conversation. You know when there's like spare space on a punch board. Mm-hmm. And they fill it in with extra coins yep. and everything like that. Well, Earth has all these green cubes, right? You use cubes as sprouts. You put cubes on your cards like you do in Terraforming Mars, whatever it is. And you put cubes on to be sprouts, which you might then turn into compost or you might trade for something or just leave there for victory points, whatever you want. They filled up the space with lots of punch board squares, the same size as a cube, to use as spare sprouts should you need to. They're never getting punched. There is absolutely no way in hell I am using 0.5 millimeter squares of like green as a game component or expecting anybody else to suffer that. They're just sat in the bottom of the box. <laughs> they will stay there just in case, you know, kind of, I guess I ever want to pass the game on and people want to make sure they haven't missed and lost any of their components. They're staying unpunched. How they even thought that it was a sensible idea to put that there, I don't know. I'm surely they could have used that space for something else. Uh, they could have like put up a little punch board. Little I would have out thrown them out. <laughs> Yeah, well, I would, you know, they could have used that space and had like a little planet Earth, a little disc of planet Earth, a little stand to stick it on. It's a big, giant first player market. Like, a, they could have done anything with that punch board space. That, I just looked at that and thought, no, no, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I mean, that's like, it makes makes the padlocks in tank catacombs look like they're perfect. You know, kind of, it's, it's just ugh, horrible, horrible. I remember there was a, an Acrony had some retail edition, like chits like that, which is just like, ugh, and that made you want to use the Kickstarter ones, but in earth but any edition of it will have the, the green cubes i just thought of another one i was gonna say just quickly before we go to that canva have either yes. of you played canvas i love this game i think it's very pretty it's a very simple game it comes with these little easels yes have you ever played, played with, with the easels, easels every single time but i have a problem with the easels It comes with enough for everybody to have two easels, but you need three canvases to win the game. I I always I always just use the one easel to put up my most recent painting, to be honest. The others go on top and then when we score it's like we place them all out. It's just for the recent artwork, Jen. And not the buy it at the store version. The buy it at the store version doesn't have the easels. But the Kickstarter version came with two easels per person which is my problem because you need to have three of the canvases that to actually no win the game I've... 
Exactly. It makes perfect sense because what you then need is a Kickstarter copy of The Gallerist. So you can take the easels out the Kickstarter copy of The Gallerist where there's only one papaya <laughs> and try and balance the big paintings from like canvas on the small easels that are meant for small square paintings out of The Gallerist. And then you're sorted. So I don't unfortunately have the Kickstarter version of canvas. I do have the Kickstarter version of The Gallerist, which means I'm an easel. I've got, well, no, I'm two easels short. <laughs> rather than one easel short and those easels you know, are a little Chris, bit rickety i have a solution i have a solution for you i could give you my four spare easels for your game and then i'll just have one set of easels and you'll have a set and francois will have a set and everybody Love will have it. a set That's of easels for canvas <laughs> <laughs> I, I think cam- canvas is a very because I, I remember playing it and finding not a lot of game there because it seems to be very easy or we got very lucky with the draw to, to actually achieve objectives in yeah. it um even though it's very pretty, but the so far the amount of time I spent playing Canvas and the amount of time I spent peeling off the protective film on each of its transparent cards <laughs> hasn't yet reached the right balance of those two. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Did anyone have any nails left? Oh, I don't have nails anyway. So. <laughs> For the content of the game, it's a very cute little game, but I find Starving Artist, not a Starving Artist in New York, but Starving Artist, I actually think is a better art game than Canvas. Oh, which one that? Because well, I, I was thinking it, fake artist in New I'll York. I'll bring it to Board in the West. Mm-hmm. Yes. So a, a Starving Artist, I'll bring it to Board in the West. We'll play it next time. And you'll both, I think you'll both agree with me. It's a much better game than canvas in terms of an art Jane, game does it have easels so. oh no mm. because oh. then your little cubes will fall off but gotcha. you'll, you'll understand when you see it it's it's definitely it's a much better art game than canvas for sort of but I, I think that's more because I really love art. I love going to galleries. I love getting fired up about those stupid, big, white painted canvases that, how is this art? You know, when you put that next to something like a Monet or a Klimt. But uh, a starving artist has lots of beautiful paintings in it from very traditional and some modern artists. And it's a really good way to, again, educate people about art who maybe aren't that into art and show them how <laughs> diverse and beautiful it can actually be that wasn't that controversial until you uh, i guess started putting that skew towards the traditional art i'm the opposite one i I love my art galleries but i'm the one who will drag my son into the modern art gallery and when i had to go through the prado in madrid which many people will queue up for for ages and there's some hieronymus bosch downstairs which is like kind of like modern art just a thousand years old like kind of like this it's because it's it's modern art in spirit but outside of hieronymus bosch god it was boring (laughs) Uh, give me a modern art gallery any day of the week. <laughs> I really, really can't. Like, I find traditional portrait art and that kind of thing just absolutely does me in. It's like brown, murky, and just like, oh, God, there's another sodding like, set of people like relaxing by a tree um, next to an orange. <laughs> I went to the Louvre and I skipped no. Mona Lisa. I know. <laughs> There's controversy. I was like, I don't care about seeing the Mona Lisa. It's like this big. Who cares? Let's just go see something else. So my friend was a little shocked at me when I said that to him, but I actually haven't seen the Mona Lisa in person. We kind of walked past the room. I saw the big queue and I went, nah, can't be bothered. (laughs) Let's go look at the cool stuff in the basement. A fake artist in New York would probably benefit from the um, easels more than any of these games. 
because the art is actually created within the game by people drawing, which kind of feels yes. like a game with easels that's like Pictionary or something like that, isn't it? Then you feel like somehow it's more deserved if the art is actually created and sketched there and then. It obviously doesn't mean that it's worthy of display, probably far less worthy of display, but it's also more earned. Definitely. The elephant in the room, though. And the elephant in the room is pretty obvious. So it's related to this sub-elephant. The sub-elephant is, I've just unpacked this box and I can't fit it all back in the box and I can't store this damn thing because I've got too many boxes. <laughs> the real elephant in the room is, I've got a great game. I'm going to put it on crowdfunding. I want to be able to make enough money to make this game and I want to be able to attract lots of backers to this. So I am going to both for the hell of it and to extend it and to get more money out of it. And potentially I'm even going to break the game to make sure I can incorporate these things and have a fake justification for it, throw in as many plastic miniatures as I possibly can. <laughs> and then they will arrive yeah. at your house and you will get them out. And even if you do paint some figures, as I do for some games, but I only have so much time, like most people who would do that, unless they're professional painters, you turn around and you say, right, okay, I'm going to put these things out on the board. And you go, wow, look at the sculpture. Look at it. It's great. And now I've used up enough cupboard space to store 15, 16 games. I was trying to pack Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape back into a box. Some lovely plastic figures in it. Really fun Ameritrash game. The box is this big. I found that by using a couple of old expansion boxes and some foam, I could make a kind of insert that allows me to fit the base game back in its own box. You can't do it with Darkest Dungeon. I managed to get it back in. But there's some really delicate miniatures in there, so you have to be quite careful. And I've had to take a bit of an old wing scan card pack and put that in the bottom just to make sure that it's never held at an angle that might squash one of the figures. The actual game would require a box a third of the size if it had standees or my favourite thing, acrylic standees. Apart from that, acrylic standees have that thing Mm -hmm. thing as canvas where you've got light braving taking the protective film off. Acrylic standees look amazing. I'm a massive convert to acrylic standees. Fantastic popping colour art. The only thing you don't have is something to paint. And that's a way of blinging up a game. It takes up vastly less space. Now, if you look at what happened to Mythic Games, who ultimately, you know, let's be fair, Mythic Games some of the, make some of the best miniatures in the world. You look at Darkest Dungeon, which I have got sat over there. The figures, which I'll never paint, are fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Every single one of them. But the game broke them. I mean, the whole miniatures thing broke Mythic Games to the point where they're having to go back and ask for like all the money all over again just to produce each game one at a time and trying to get back alive. Because the moment shipping prices went up, those massive towers of boxes that people were selling became so expensive to ship that when they had thousands and thousands and thousands of backers, that loss got turned into a ginormous loss. It wasn't a small hit to the organization. It was absolutely massive. So their own success was killing them. And then you look at like that, what was it, Marvel Zombie side that came with this figure that is like half the size of an adult human being. That's just like these ridiculous kind of what? like miniature. It's, it's completely bonkers. There's this just figure and it's just, it is absolutely huge. Galactus or whatever it is. And it is just completely absurd, completely ridiculous. I know like Joan of Arc, um, one of the old mythic games came with this massive like dragon thing that would take like two bottles of paint worth to actually cover and paint and to finish painting. So no one's ever going to finish painting this stuff. But it also breaks the game because a company that could make a fantastic game, even a fantastic campaign game, instead 
goes in there and spends all its life making more miniatures, more plastic, more boxes, more expansions, getting that all in pack, getting that all in, you know, back a pledge so the people are pledging like, you know, $600, $700 a pot to get everything that they need. Um, and then they do it for another game, then they do it for another game. And, you know, people are losing money hand and fist. You're getting so much plastic, you're not getting the best possible game because they've just thrown more and more and more content at it. And the companies are making themselves broke. But real crunches, those games used to anyway sell. The game with the bit, all the bits of plastic got 12,000, 13,000, 15,000 backers. So my question kind of is, where are the, the board gamers rather than the painters? And I am a painter for games that I really like and where I really like the figures and that's it because that's all I have time for. Or games where the painting really matters like Station Fall. And I love Station Fall as we all know. I actually have the best example of a game that over-delivered on what I thought I was getting out of Kickstarter. Have either of you ever no. seen Unicorn Fever? Oh, that's presumably not from miniatures, or is it? Oh, it's 100% for the miniatures. Oh, wow. 100%. This is going to, this is requiring a visual. So okay. I'm either going to put a visual up, like a little link on the on the podcast for people to to go and have a look at i'm going to show you guys this is insane i, like, I think chris that the the way while we're waiting for jean to grab her game uh the way that you are thinking about what um miniatures wrong <laughs> box. The wrong box, what miniatures bring to a game or not uh is a bit of a a weird one to think about what backers expect and what they actually enjoy and should be wanting out of the game. And Jane's back. Jane's back. With some unicorns. Unicorn Fever is the most over-delivered game. I squealed when I got this game. It is seriously, look at this thing. Okay, so, the oh playmat is like every little girl's dream of this is the kind of unicorn game that I so want to play. So Jane is holding up a something that, that looks like a playmat. blanket uh, that about seven people can fit under it. Maybe not really, but it it is Pretty massive. <laughs> it will not fit my gaming is, table. Now, is that a blanket? These, it is a fabric playmat. Look at these. These are the gems that come with the game. This this isn't even all of it. Like the coins, they're actual metal. These are wow. heavy. These things, seriously. Listen. They're freaking heavy as anything coins. But this isn't even the over-delivered part. This is the over-delivered Wait, part. Wait, opening a second box now? The Kickstarter. I'm opening a second box. The Kickstarter came with two versions of the game. So here's the normal game board and the normal game pieces. And no way. The miniatures. That looks like a collectible. A collectible miniature no. that you buy in a How store. Cool. That like that is amazing. In a box <laughs> with a name. The in toys. The, it came with its own box for the miniatures. These miniatures, for those listening, are the size of my hand. Now I'm five foot three with tiny hands, but a miniature for a game that is the size of my hand 
properly painted, like professional, you know, painted. I don't even know how they're painted. They're, they're literally like a little pop pop figure. What are, you, the, yes. what are they called? Yes. The Funkos? Funko Pop. They're, like, they're toys, they're like aren't that. they? Yeah. A Funko Pop. Thank you. They're like, they're literally the best thing ever. Like this is, oh, where is it? Cinnamon's adorable. Melody Sweet is literally my favorite one. Look at the dirt face on this wow. thing. Seriously. Like, and these are the pieces that came with the Kickstarter version of the game. And I deliberately the got well? the Kickstarter version. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I was going to say, so yeah. I was going to say, does it play well? Does it play well with those figures as opposed to the non Kickstarter figures? Does that make it better? Oh, much better. Cool. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what counts, It does though. make it better having mm. the big, yeah, but it's still the world's most ridiculous game. It's very funny. Um, trying to teach it to people. This is another one. I'll need to bring it with me to Board in the West sometime. It's up to six players. You are basically people who are betting on unicorns. So you're playing the crowd, betting on unicorns in a unicorn race. Like Ready, Set, Bet. I haven't played Ready, Set, Bet, but it, it's just hilarious. And it, you're making all these, like, bribes with all these little creatures and exchanging gems and pranking people and sabotaging the unicorns and, oh, it's funny as. It's literally the most ridiculous game in the world. And I was so shocked when I got it and saw how far it over-delivered on its promise of pre-painted miniatures. But that is, I mean, that's (laughs) different in some ways because that's actually doing something that brings up the game and makes the game experience better. I'm a big fan of pre-painted miniatures. They're not always great. I mean, if you remember the old ones that you get in like Betrayal in the House of the Hill, (laughs) pretty rubbish, you know, know, but the... um, the pre-painted miniatures that came with Zaya, one of my favourite games, uh, space game, because that was all like pre-painted ships. It's not amazing quality painting, but it's damn wonderful having them pre-painted. And his next game, Cody Miller's next game from uh, from Far Off Games, which is his big sort of campaign game, was like a Zelda-esque, or Zelda in a box, it basically is, that he's been working on for ages. That's going to have all pre-painted miniatures. And that oh, is cool. something I can really go with because they're not prioritizing having the most beautifully constructed miniatures the most perfect miniatures the most perfect for painters miniatures they're prioritizing i want to get into this game and experience like this zelda like setting that he's creating which will be if it's anything like cody miller's usual stuff a typical fantasy setting but just slightly funnier and quirkier then you just pull them out of the box and they're ready painted for you so it's all about the game that I think is the thing that really makes it such a huge difference. It's when those additional bits of bling distract from the game, or they force you to do something you wouldn't do. I mean, having said that, I'm sure it was only like one or two podcasts ago that I was talking about seize the bean, and in seize the bean, they created some extra bling, and then having created that extra bling, needed a mode to play with that extra bling, and they bolted it on. Exactly what I've just said is a problem, and I insist on playing with that mode because that extra bling is so thematic to the game, even though it's not meant to be the ideal way to play the game, and it makes the game less fair because it's so beautiful. So there's always an exception, I think, for everybody. But those, I think those challenges where you look at it and you say, well, why is it that when we look at a game on Kickstarter as 
board game fans as opposed to like miniature painters because you can look at it as somebody who collects miniatures and paints miniatures and that's different so you're looking at it as board game fans why is it that sometimes we're attracted to things that have nothing to do with how well the game is going to play and might actually yeah. make the game worse and we will never care about and we know we will never care about so you're 100 hours of content when we know full well we've got six games already with 100 hours of content we've only played them for five hours each or, <laughs> yeah. or, or this is know, why re- Rod's yeah. never it's why Rod's never bought Frostpunk to board in the West because it took him an hour and a half to set it up like have you no. seen the components for Frostpunk I, it's like a, yeah. literally a giant tower that sits in the middle of the table for this game and setting it up was going to take so long because I said to him why don't you just bring it to board in the West and we'll play it there and he's like We'd have to get there at four so I could set it up in time for us to play the game because it takes hours to play it as well. But it's along the lines of games that are like, um, what's your favourite one, Chris? The one where you have to end up sacrificing who you're going to eat? Halapagus. Yeah, it's it's one of those games where, (laughs) oh, but you can't with Frostpunk. No. Frostpunk is very much like... Yeah, 100%. You know, do you kill off these people or do you let these people survive? You know, it's uh, lots and lots of moral questions around, you know, what are you going to do to basically continue on your society and who are you willing to sacrifice for the better of all? So it's a great game. I've never played it with him. Like he's explained it to me so many times, but it just takes so long to set up. And I guess that's sort of... The thing I want to put out there to designers is how long do you want to spending setting up this game versus actually playing it? You know, I think it's something Chris and I have said for ages, we want to design games together. It's something we're really going to have to put a lot of thought in as well. You know, how long is it going to take people to set this game up and learn it versus the actual fun of playing this game? There's a game called Unsettled, if you've heard it, which is a, a cooperative game. It has loads of different sort of scenarios and little configurable boxes. It's like a planet exploration survival game that has got different planets that you can explore. And each planet has different mechanics and so on. And there's three different missions you can take part on each planet. So again, there's fixed amount of games you can play with it of a sort, but there's enough variation in that you'd never get through all of it. And that has one of the best designs for that that you can imagine because although each one's got different needs, each player trade that comes out of it effectively is literally comes out one, bang, 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 one, two, bang, 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 go. And you're playing quite a complex narrative game because they've designed the whole thing in this box that's shaped like the player trays so you can literally pop them out and everything is just ready to go instantly. That's, that's awesome. That, that was fantastically done. I think it's been done very well in the versions of Vindication, which I know Francois, that's the same uh, same publisher and designers as, um, as Unsettled, Vindication, which has increasingly, as it's gone to new big box versions, got to the point where you can really just get out of the table and play. But yeah, that's where some of those um, miniature-based games are, are worse. And the other thing, you know, we're talking about how long Frostpunk takes to set up with all these little bits. You know that thing where you're playing a game which is potentially a campaign game and there are a whole load of miniatures and you flip up a card and the card says, you have encountered the lair of the wyvern beast. Yes. The wyvern beast comes out to attack you. The wyvern beast is on the board. Extract the wyvern beast miniature from the board. 
well, I've got a little uh, impressionist painting on this card, and I've got a whole stack full of miniatures. So just everyone stop playing. Yeah. You know, see, I'm just going to scrabble through this box to find the wyvern beast. Right, okay? So scrabble around a little bit, take a look. Right, okay, I've got this picture. Have I got a map? Ooh, hold on. I haven't quite got the map to where it is. Oh, those ones are in that box because they didn't fit in the base game box. So I put them all together, right? Scrabble around. It's all right. I'm almost there. Everyone's finished their tea. Just make a pot. Have a little bit more tea. Get coffee. <laughs> right, I found the wyvern beast. Right, let's all get together and attack the wyvern beast. So we stick the wyvern beast on the map. And we say, right, we attack the Wyvern Beast, the Wyvern Beast attacks us. We're in a war. Roll for what the Wyvern Beast does next. Roll the one. What does that mean? Oh, he disappears off the board and runs away again. (laughs) (laughs) And he's gone. Or you go, attack. We attack. Oh, we one-hit killed it. Oh, okay. (laughs) Right, it's gone. It's not there anymore. Right. This is what I don't like about Gloomhaven. (laughs) It takes so long to set Gloomhaven up and find all the little components that you need. Like, I love the idea of it being this really awesome run-to-self-D&D campaign, but Jesus Christ, it takes so long to set it up, and then it's like 20 minutes of playing it, and then you're like, cool, we're down, let's set it let's I a little bit down. It's like, have to, you, I, you I have spend really? literally three hours the evening before we play to find at least three sort of episodes that we can play and I set them all out and then we play uh, for the day and if I don't do that preparation Gloomhaven just does not get to the table I, I want to play Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion because that streamlined it a lot it put the maps in a book it made it a lot more straightforward a lot simpler to get set up but it's still got effectively the mechanics of Gloomhaven and there's a more straightforward smaller campaign often rated as being as good if not better than Gloomhaven I played X amount of Gloomhaven itself and got sick of it uh, because of all the faff but the thing that I did find was the Gloom Helper app and it wasn't part of the formal thing but there was the app to track all the stats and track all the things it makes such a difference because you're not going to pick all those cards up I don't know whether you can do that for Jaws of the Lion I'm sure there would be one what amazed me was when Frosthaven came out and Frosthaven had an even bigger box than Gloomhaven and didn't have a smaller box like Jaws of the Lion, it could still have a bigger campaign, could still have a much bigger campaign and all that expansive thing that you need to and put a whole load of that management into the app because it is so much easier, so much more efficient. And actually, you probably find the game is played properly more because there's times that people draw a minus two off the top of it and go bollocks to it and put it back and draw something else when no one else is looking. <laughs> so when everyone's looking because it's a co-op game. You know, people will be playing in the spirit of the game a little bit more because the app will give you what the app gives you. But I didn't understand that, but I also do understand it because that, again, is that Kickstarter logic. Gloomhaven works better as a more compact game with an app doing the upkeep, hands down, right? That's widely Absolutely. And yet, when they go to market with a new one, it's another massive environmentally toxic box of cardboard it's just a just a kind of pain to that which is an opinionated thing sometimes you might like that there's not even any miniatures well actually there are miniatures to paint in Gloomhaven but that's worse what about that moment where you suddenly like change characters you know what if you haven't painted the character like I have this yeah. kind of thing with uh, the, like, the Assassin's oh, Creed board that game time. the Assassin's Creed board game is going to be great and one of the great things about the Assassin's Creed board game there's two two things that are wonderful about it indicators of how good it is intended to be and i played a couple of the intro missions which i'll happily play again uh, just to see how it worked and the mechanics of it are great first it was based upon 
a game that had already been designed that was a stealth game. So it didn't design the mechanics specifically for it. There was a proper solid game underneath it called V-Sabotage that then was expanded out into this game, and now they've made up a blinged version of V-Sabotage as well, off the back of it. Um, and also the, the designer of it worked really closely with some of the Montreal team that were designers on Assassin's Creed and had been one of them had been X. Ubisoft. So he had a personal connection with those individuals and that feeling of, right, I have to do, you know, it was, it was clearly a labor of love, right? I have to do this, um, kind of this whole franchise proud. It has 130 odd miniatures. And because I started painting them, I need to finish. I think I am halfway through. I have owned the game for two and a bit years. It has not been properly played because I now want to finish painting it and it had a bunch of secret boxes that you're only meant to reveal so what am I supposed to do I was looking at this box like um you know when I packed stuff away when we moved house I packed stuff I was in the middle of painting back into the boxes so I can get them out again and restart at some point and I was packing this away I looked at that and I thought I wonder what's in these boxes. I bet it's more miniatures that come out by surprise. Now imagine you're in a game where it says, now, open surprise box one, because this new enemy is going to come out on the field. And that enemy is grey, and you've painted all the others. So the fact is, you don't want the surprise. You need to have painted the damn thing. Otherwise, you're like, right, can we pause for enough cups of tea that to keep you for maybe a couple of days painting <laughs> and enough time for them to dry and me to varnish them please i mean that's like right everyone go away we're going to start playing again next week but we're in the middle of a mission no we're not we're using a gray miniature or what's the anticlimax if you're playing with loads of painted figures what? and then you pull a bill beastie out of a surprise box and it's gray and then you play with it and then you're done with it and by the time you get around to painting it you're done with it so i took them all out and primed them all I now know what they all are, so that I've got them at least ready to paint, and I'm going to have to paint them and put them away again. But it's like, what's the point? What's the point of having something that is meant to be a surprise in a secret box that comes out and gives you some impact on the game field as part of the story if you have to take the thing out and spoil the surprise to paint it? Oh. <laughs> it's like, why? Absolutely. Do you know, guys, we could probably keep chatting about this all afternoon, but I think we need to get to a point of wrapping it up and saying, you know what, there are so many amazing games out there. If something's a little controversial, have a think about what the other side of that game could definitely be and maybe do a little bit of exploration behind games you might not have looked at before. And for Kickstart campaigns, maybe just think about how many miniatures you actually want to be painting. But thank you so much, Francois, for being our guest today and for doing our acknowledgement of country. We really appreciate it. Um, you can find all of our information on melbournemeeples.org.au. If you join our Facebook group, Melbourne Meeples, we've got all of our different things that are happening. So we've got Board in the West, Board in the East, Northern Suburbs Euro Games, Audacious Games, Devonshire Society, and quite excitingly, MeepleCon is coming. Our tickets are now live and on sale. So if you go to melbournemeeples.org.au, you'll be able to find the link to tickets there or again through our Facebook group. We're going to have a lot more ads and things going out very soon, giving you links to be able to buy tickets. And we can't wait to see you all there. MeepleCon is going to be a big event. It's the 10th anniversary of MeepleCon this year. And I think what's really important to say about uh, MeepleCon this year is it may well be that by the time we put this podcast out, it's only six, seven weeks till the event. So if you haven't got a MeepleCon ticket and you're listening to this podcast, I would get on there 
if hopefully they haven't quite sold out yet but get in there and get your ticket now because they are going going to sell out this year there's going to be amazing games it's going to be an amazing convention and best of all you can come and meet chris and jen and make some new friends and yourself francois because i'm sure you'll be there as well right see you there thank you so much for having me today guys oh it's been a pleasure it's been so much fun and we will catch you all next time see you later